Thank you, guys. That was good. I love that um, that chorus um, that Pastor Ryan and Jacob led us in when we and how we incorporated it into the prayer time about how Jesus is our God and our King, and so it's good things. Uh, this morning we're gonna we're gonna be in John chapter six, and we're gonna try and cover a lot of territory today, and uh, maybe that's why the crowd's small this morning. Um, maybe they saw it on Facebook about reading John chapter 6, 22 through verse 71, and you guys realize that have been here more than a week or two that um, I'm long-winded as it is, even when we cover just a few verses, so what's it going to be like when we cover a lot of verses? Um, we'll try to do that in a, in a timely fashion for sure. Um, before we get into the text, I'm going to ask if, if you guys could, I don't know if you guys, some of you, because we're a close family today, you may have seen Courtney kind of come in a little emotional right before the service started. She just got a phone call from her mom that her uncle, um, and they're a very close family, and her uncle lives up in Pensacola, got into a, had a bike accident yesterday, and I guess he fell, broke his clavicle, um, when the doctors came back home, and then later that afternoon had a heart attack. And here's a guy in his early 40s, and they discovered he had two blocked arteries, and I, I don't, the family's kind of rushing out there, so I'm not really sure what the whole, um, what all's going on there, but she was very upset about it. Obviously, it's a family, and um, they're close. So if you guys could keep, his name's Chat Fraley. Um, if you could keep the Fraley family in your prayers today, I would, I would greatly appreciate that, and, and Courtney would as well, I'm sure. Um, this morning, we're going to look at a text um, that's it's, it's challenging on many fronts. And again, as I mentioned last week, with this expository type teaching, I, what I like about this is it allows us to see um, these stories in the context. So we're building, each week we're kind of building on the previous week, right? And so the last couple of weeks when we look at this, we, we can't separate this from the things that we just studied because when we look at it in that perspective, it, it I think opens up our eyes a little bit. And, and so if we were to just look at this text straight up without looking at what happened previously, it lose, loses, I think, some of the, the impact. And so to remind us what had happened previously, um, two weeks ago we talked about when Jesus had, had come, the morning he, he found out that his close friend, his, his cousin, the forerunner John the Baptist, had been killed, had been arrested and beheaded. And so we, we, we talked a little bit about how just the, the raw emotion, Jesus would have had the same feelings you and I would have felt losing a loved one. And so he, he, he works through that in the morning, and then he goes in the crowd, and he and the disciples are trying to find this quiet place, a, pli- a place to just kind of relax a little bit, kind of catch their breath, because they've been really busy going around teaching, preaching, all that stuff. And, and so they go into the wilderness, but the crowds begin to follow Jesus. And at this time, we have to understand, when we use it, and sometimes when we read this and some of the words we're going to read today, um, the word disciple is used, and, and, and not every time it's used is, is, is the Bible referring to the twelve. Okay, the disciples was simply those who were following Jesus. And as we'll see this morning, that um, those who followed the commitment varied. And so at this time in Jesus' ministry, he's become this really um, uh, celebrated kind of local celebrity to the fact that, to the point that he had probably tens of thousands of disciples, people who were following him. And so these crowds were following him, and they tried to get away in the wilderness, and the crowds kept following him. And so Jesus stops, he teaches, he preaches, and it's getting close to evening, they're hungry, you know, we had the whole 
miracle of the Jesus feeding the 5,000. Remember, that, that's a miracle that didn't just, Jesus didn't just say, thank you, Lord, for the food, clap his hands, and boom, there was enough food for thousands, right? I mean, this is Jesus literally breaking the bread and the fish and handing them to the disciples and the disciples dispersing it. And the reality is the 5,000 was just the number of men that did not count any of the women, did not count any of the children. So the crowd was probably 15,000, 20,000 easily. And so this miracle took hours, right? And so, so Jesus had the emotions of the morning of the loss of a close friend. Um, the, the, the remaining part of the day, most of the day, he had been teaching, preaching. So he was physically probably tired. And then he goes and he does this miracle and probably just exhausted. So when the miracle's done, the crowd's all amped up. They want to usher Jesus as king. And Jesus gets the disciples in a boat, tells them to go over to Capernaum. And then Jesus is going to go up into the, the hill and just get away with God and just pray and draw close to his father. Okay, and so that's what two weeks ago we were at. And then last week we talked about how Jesus came down from the hill, from the mountain. The disciples are out there. Storm comes up. The guys have been rowing the boat all night long. Uh, they started probably late, like around dusk. In the fourth watch, which has been somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., the disciples are only halfway across this eight-mile sea. And, just, and Jesus, in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the waves, all stuff, walks in the water. And then the last week we talked about Peter and how Peter came out there, right? And so all this takes place as soon as Jesus gets to the boat. The Bible tells us, end of uh, that passage that we looked at last week, that the boat was immediately to the other side. They were in Capernaum. Okay, so that's where we're at. So, that, so, so day one of this discussion, Jesus feeds 5,000, walks on water. Next morning, the crowds that had followed him wake up. The last they saw Jesus, he went into the mountain to pray. The disciples went in a boat and went across. And so the crowd forms, and they don't see any more boats, so they assume that, that, that Jesus is somewhere in the hillside praying. And so they search the hillside. They can't find him. And so they decide to, to get in these boats and then go across to, to Capernaum. So what we're going to do is we're going to, because of the length of the passage here, I, I would encourage you, I, I would greatly, greatly encourage you this evening to, to go through and, and read this entire passage, starting in verse 22 and all the way through 71. This morning we're going to skip a little bit, and then we're going to try and fill in some of the blanks. So this morning we're going we're gonna to pick up in verse 25. And this is, Jesus had, had the crowds had searched the hillside, hadn't found Jesus they get in the boats and they go over to Capernaum. And verse 25 says, And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then he said to them, what must we, or then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So here we have this passage, right? So, so they go to him, and they're like, okay, you know, hey, why did you come over here? And Jesus, what I love about Jesus, I mean, we see this so often through his, his interaction with crowds, is he like cuts to the chase. Right? And he, he says to them, guys, you're not really concerned with, with why I came here or how I got here. You're really, all you're really, you woke up this morning hungry, and you want another free lunch. So he cuts to the chase. He says, this is the deal, guys. You're just, you're looking for more signs. And, and he says, why are you guys working so hard for food that perishes? 
Why are you laboring so hard for this stuff that, that you're just going to consume and it'll be gone tomorrow and you're going to be wanting and desiring and chasing the same thing day after day after day and you will never be filled. Why? So they, the people asked a simple question. Well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus, this is, again, simple, practical. Jesus says, listen, there's only one thing you can do. There's only one work. Only one work. It says, and this is the work of God, that you believe. That you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now, guys, again, this is why I say it's so amazing, right? So, Two weeks ago, we talked about the feeding of the 5,000, right? That happened the day before this. This is the same crowd he's talking to. And they're saying, okay, so you want us to believe you? So what? Perform a miracle for us. Does that not, like, cause anybody to say, holy cow. Like, they just five, he just fed like 5,000 the day before with a little boy's lunch. And now they're saying, okay, we'll believe, but you need to give us something. Give me, give me, give me a sign so I can really trust you. How audacious this, this, this crowd is. Verse 21, it says, Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So the crowd goes back to Moses and the Israelites when they wandered in the wilderness. And he says, the crowd's saying, listen, Moses, he gave us manna from heaven. And Jesus quickly corrects their, their error. And Jesus says in uh, verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the bread, the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. So Jesus corrects them and says, Listen, Moses did nothing. It was God who provided the bread, the manna, the food from heaven. What's interesting is when you look at verse 34, this is almost the exact same statement that the woman of the well in, verse, or in chapter 4 said. There's a lot of correlations here between the conversation Jesus has with the woman of the well when he offers her this everlasting water. And now he's offering this group bread, eternal bread. And so, much like the woman, when the woman says, sure, give, me, give me this everlasting water so I don't have to come to this well anymore and keep drawing it up. Her mind was locked on physical, literal water that we would drink. And the crowd's doing the same exact thing. And they say, if you have this, this magic loaf of bread that will keep feeding us, give it to us. Where, where can I find it? Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Jesus says, listen, guys, I, it's me. I am the bread of life. I am the manna sent from heaven to you. One of those things I love um, is towards the end of verse 37 when he says, um, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If I were you, I, I, would, I would underline that in your Bible. 
those of you who have come to that point in your life where, where you've asked Jesus Christ to become your Lord and Savior, I think all of us, there'll be times in our lives where we wrestle with this idea of like losing our salvation. I think especially when you, those of us who were young children when we asked Christ to become our Lord and Savior, we use that kind of term when we ask Jesus into our heart. Sometimes when we do that as young kids, we go through the stages in life, maybe in our, our early teen years or our college years, where we begin to doubt things. We make mistakes in life, and all of us make mistakes in life, right? And we think, oh, maybe I'm not worthy of this anymore. What a, what a great promise that Jesus proclaims to these people there. I will never cast you out. Once saved, always saved. No matter what you do, I will never cast you out. What a blessing that is for us to hold tight to. This interaction that Jesus has with this crowd causes some grumbling. We see here in verse 41, and we're not going to go through this. What's interesting in this discourse is Jesus on a couple of occasions now takes this theme and goes back and tries to explain it once again. But each time he doesn't necessarily add any more truth. He just adds new details. It gets more intense in this symbolic illustration. The crowds begin to grumble because they're looking for a sign. They're looking for miracles. And Jesus knows that a miracle or faith based on a miracle is shallow and will not last. And so the crowds are, are, are arguing. And, and Jesus uses this example of a bread of life. And earlier in the passage that we just read, I love how it says that Jesus put, or that God put a seal on the bread. Back in these Old Testament or New Testament days, the bakers, bread, bread's one of those things even today. How many of you guys like bread? Like everybody likes bread, right? I mean, the bad thing about all these diets coming out is what do they tell you not to eat? Bread. It's horrible. I don't, it's not biblical. No, just kidding, right? No, but, but, but bread's one of those things. It's one of those, it's, it's cross-cultural. Like every, every culture eats bread. It's, it's one of these illustrations that we can all recognize. We've all, we all eat bread. Most of us eat bread at least once a day, probably twice a day. Maybe three times a day. I don't know if you count waffles count as bread probably, right? Yeah, right? So we probably eat waffles. We, we eat bread three, four times a day. We all understand what bread is. And during these days, the, the bakers, it was, bread was popular. And, and so a, a baker would put his own seal on the bread so that bread would be identified. So as, as you're in the market and you, you buy bread, whatever, it's identified as that baker's bread. And, and God tells us, and Jesus says, listen to this, the sign, the bread of life, the sign, I'm sealed by the Father. I'm sent from Him. Later on, as Jesus goes through this, He, he gets even more and more intense with the crowd. What I, what I think is amazing with Jesus, one of the things that, that we struggle, I'll be honest with you, one of the things that I even struggle with as a pastor is, is when you, you, you almost want to sometimes make apologies for making strong statements. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus, in, in, instead, Jesus intensifies. It goes from bread to all of a sudden, you need to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Now, do you guys think Jesus is talking about cannibalism? No. Again, it's symbolic. 
but he's talking to a, a group of people, Jews, who would, who would go out of their way to remove all blood from their food. And now he's saying, you're going to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And what Jesus is saying is, is, listen, I want you to depend completely on me. I want to be everything. It's hard for us to understand this idea of eating Jesus, isn't it? It doesn't make a lot of sense. I think for us to have a better understanding of this, we have to go back to the Old Testament in Genesis. When we read about the fall of man, Adam and Eve, it's a story we're probably all familiar with, right? Adam and Eve are in the garden, first man and first woman, God places them there. They're in the Garden of Eden. They have free reign over everything, and God just gives them one command, doesn't he? Don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what do they do? The one thing they're not supposed to do, right? They eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The result of that is this. They fall. Now they know in their minds good and evil. No longer are they dependent on their father. Prior to this fall, whenever there was confusion, whenever there was a problem, whenever there was a misunderstanding, whenever they needed anything, they cried out, Father, help. Now, in their minds, they know good, evil. They know right, they know wrong. They're no longer dependent on God. They have become independent as a result of eating this fruit. And what Jesus is practically saying to them is, listen, I want you to consume me, internalize me. I want to go into the, the deepest recess of your souls. I want you to desire me above all. I want you to carve out time every single day, just like you carve out time to eat and drink. I want you to carve out time to spend with me. That's what Jesus is asking. And he doesn't soften this. He doesn't try and paint this pretty, pretty little picture. He's not comforting the crowd, and, and he's getting more and more intense. Verse 52, let's skip ahead, and it says the, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my, pl- my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds in my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever, because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus is saying all this in the synagogue. Again, what a beautiful picture. And what he's saying is, guys, all this stuff that you're laboring after, all these material things, it's, it's going to perish. And what's interesting in, in this context is he's not even saying it one day will perish. He's, he's saying even now it perishes. We, we all, guys, we all are pursuing things. It's not just, don't, 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 please don't take this as I'm trying to point out 
to you as a people that you guys are pursuing this and Chad's doing something different. Listen, we all have inner struggles. And there are, all, there are times in all of our lives when we are pursuing something. It may be relational. It may be vocational. But we're pursuing something. And Jesus is saying, listen, all those things that you're trying to attain, at the end of the day, it, it's worthless. It's not going to mean a whole lot. We can see that in our own lives, can't we? Many of us, we can, we can think back when we begin our, our vocational pursuit. You, you get a job with a company, and your dream one day is to attain maybe this position, whatever position it is in, in leadership there. You may be fortunate one day to attain that. All of a sudden, you get that seat, and it's pretty empty because now, you want, now it's not good enough anymore, is it? You want the next position, the better position. You want to go to the other company. Financially, we, we can have those same things. One day, if one day I can only make this much money, whatever that magic number is, maybe that one day hits and then you realize that's not enough money. I need more. Or if I, if I only get a house this big, if I get the newest car, one of the things I love is we all want, I, I, we all like new, new things, don't we? You get that brand new car. I don't even know what the most expensive vehicle is today. It's probably a lot, right? But let's say, it, it, let's say you go out and you spend 150 grand on a Ferrari. 20 years from now, unless you're in there keeping that car polished, 20 years from now, that thing's in a junkyard somewhere. You can attain that position at work, but one day, You'll retire and you'll no longer have that position. What God is saying is there's nothing wrong with these things until it becomes the thing that you pursue entirely in life. And Jesus says, there's always going to be a void in your life. Always. I, this week, I, I, somebody called me. Courtney and I and the kids went away to the beach um, for a spring break, visited her in-laws, or my in-laws. And I got a phone call, I guess it was Thursday, from somebody. And they've been chasing things in life. This guy calls me in tears, literally in te crying like a baby. Because what he keeps trying to attain, he can't attain. There's this void, and he keeps trying to fill it with other things. Guys, every one of us, every single human being is created with a void that can only be filled by one thing only. God. It's a complete Sunday school answer. I don't care what your struggle is. I don't care what your addiction is. I don't care what it is today, what it is tomorrow, or a year from now. The only thing that can fill it entirely is Jesus. And that's what he's saying is you're, you're wasting your efforts pursuing these things. Pursue me. With the same passion you pursue these other things, pursue me. And I will give you joy. I will give you peace. I will give you happiness. I will give you abundance, but pursue me. Life would be much more simple if we would simply follow Jesus' encouragement here of pursuing him. Verse uh, 60 says, when the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? 
And again, this is disciples, we're talking about the whole crowd, not just the 12. This is the whole crowd here. Verse 61 says, But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense to this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Jesus says, Listen, you're having a hard time stomaching this, and how are you going to even take the next teaching? Right here, he's saying, what are you going to do when you see me? I came from heaven. What are you going to do when I ascend back to heaven? How are you going to handle when I'm pinned to a cross and I'm dying for your sins? How are you going to handle those teachings? Verse 63 says, uh, It is the Spirit who gives life, and the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said to them, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. We, a couple weeks ago, had our youth retreat sessions. Tucker was there. Julie was there. We had about 17, 18 others, right? And Pastor Ryan um, led the youth through uh, 12 points of evangelism. Great, 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 great stuff. And... um, the idea that we were trying to motivate our, our, our youth to be able to share their faith, how they can share their faith, how they can enter a conversation. No matter where it is in the conversation, they can share their faith. They can, they can drive the conversation towards Jesus. Now, it was interesting. The, I guess it was the Wednesday night after the youth session. Um, we do like a, a Wednesday night home fellowship most weeks over at my in-laws' house, and it's open to whoever wants to come. And I was talking with the, the adults, and usually we have the youth in one area, the children in one area, and then the adults hang out with me. And we were just talking. And I, and I was asking the adults about the same kind of conversation about evangelism, about, about sharing your faith. And I asked them, I, you know, we, we, we tell the kids, we encourage the kids, but the reality is the same, the same fears that the youth face, we as adults face. And so I asked them, what, 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 are, what are some of the things that, that bother you? What, what, like, what's hard for you? Why, why is it hard for you to share your faith? And the first person said, um, well, I'm afraid that I might not get it right. What if I say something that's, that's not right? Or, or what if, what if, what if they... Um, I don't know the answers to all their questions, right? A lot of us, right, we can be very, very sincere in our hearts. We want to be able to share, but, but, but there's this fear that what if I don't know all the answers to their questions? It's something I think we all struggle with. Here's the good, good news of this. Jesus makes it very plain and simple in this passage here that it's not our job to convince people. Jesus says right there, it wasn't his job to convince the crowds. It was the Father who would call. My encouragement to you this morning is this. Don't worry about having the answers to the questions. If God's calling them, if the Holy Spirit's pricking their heart, He's going to use you as a tool. Now the hard part is this. Just because they say no the first time doesn't mean we give up. We continue on the journey. We continue telling them. We we continue praying for them. We never know when the Holy Spirit's going to turn the light bulb in their heads on. But don't feel the pressure of, I don't know all the answers. We don't need to know all the answers. It's not our job. It's God's. I find this last part of the passage here very um, very convicting and, and, and somewhat troubling. Verse uh, 66 says, um, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. 
So after all these things that Jesus said, after Jesus getting more and more intense, the reaction of the crowd is they turned away and they walked away from Jesus. The same group, remember, these are the same people that Jesus fed. These are the same people that witnessed this miracle. Verse 67 says, um, So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Pretty honest question. I mean, the disciples are sitting and hearing the same conversation. They're They're hearing the same teaching. And I, I'm sure that there's a part of Jesus as he watches the crowd go away and he looks back and he sees the 12 behind them. I'm, I, I want to almost think that there's this kind of half smile on his face, kind of like, yes, they're still here. They're still following. And he says to them, hey, the rest of the group's going. You guys want to join them? And I, I, I love Peter's response. We often, um, we often can beat up on Peter. But I love what Peter says here. Verse um, 68 says, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? (laughs) To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and I've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What's interesting is Peter had the formula right when it came to faith. They believed first. And knew later. That's the way God operates. God doesn't reveal everything to us, does He? So often we, we hear people say, um, if if I could only if if if, you could, if I could only know for sure. God doesn't typically work that way. God says, believe first and then I'll show you. Believe first and then I'll show you. And I love Peter in, in, in all his passion and in, in, in his tenacity. When God says, listen, are you guys, Jesus says, you guys going to join him? And Peter says, where are we going to go? You're the one. You're the one with all the answers. You, it's you, Jesus. It's all about you. I'm going to follow you. And Jesus, um, I believe his, his smile begins to dissipate. Verse 70, he says, um, and Jesus answered him, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus kind of corrects Peter a little bit, and he says, listen, I'm the one that chose you. But even amongst the 12 of you, there's a devil. Even amongst the 12 of you, there's one who does not truly believe. It's interesting. um, Jesus, or, or Jesus doesn't betray Jesus until later on, further down the road. I, as I was looking over this week and, and reading and, and praying over this, this passage, I began to wonder, I wonder why Jesus chose Judas as betraying him here at this point in time. Why, why is it that Jesus, that Judas is, is shown? 
You know, after looking at this in the context of all that had happened, the crowds were following Jesus. He had performed these miracles. I mean, the end of after him feeding the 5,000, the reason Jesus gets the disciples into the boat is he wants to protect the disciples from the crowds. Not that they were fearful that the crowds were going to hurt them, but because they wanted to usher Jesus in as the new king. And that wasn't the plan. And here Judas, I, I believe it's at this time when the darkness begins to show in Judas's heart. Judas, he, he saw the opportunity. Jesus could have become the great earthly king. They could have had great riches. They could have had great power. As, as one of his inner circle, as one of his 12, Judas himself could have been the treasurer. And Jesus now is scaring the crowds away. It made no sense. This plan that Jesus was beginning to unveil didn't comprehend in his mind. As we look at this passage, I think we see um, there's three responses to truth. We'll go through these quickly, and then I want to talk a little bit more about Judas. Uh, the first one, I think we look at verse um, 66, we see open defection. Right, Jesus um, goes and he talks and all stuff, and all of a sudden the, the crowds turn and run and hide, get away from Jesus. Open def- defection, verse John six sixty six. One of um, my personal um, favorite authors and pastors, and the person that I go to almost on a weekly occasion um, when I'm studying is uh, Chuck Swindoll. He's an older gentleman now um, in the Dallas area. He wrote this story when when talking about sharing his faith and this is a seasoned pastor i mean he's probably late 70s maybe in his 80s now guys i mean had enormous churches at, at one day one at one time he was president of the dallas theological seminary and this guy on the radio on tv just he's he's had all sorts of opportunity and he tells a story about um having his friend who was a doctor and he was spending this time and he kept he kept praying and this guy was not a believer and he kept praying that, that, that God would give him an opportunity to share his faith with this doctor friend of his. So one day they, they went to breakfast and they just had this a conversation that, that led into this idea of, of Chuck Swindoll sharing his testimony. And so in, in the story, Chuck Swindoll says that he went through it all. He, he grabbed a napkin and he, he drew out the whole salvation story. Some of you guys have seen that illustration where there's a chasm between us and God, and because of our sin, there's, there's this big chasm, right? And, and then he uses this idea of the cross being the bridge that, that gets us from where we are to God. And, and so Chuck Swindoll, it's, it, he goes, it was the most simplistic, um, the, the best illustration that I, I, I thought I could use. And I, I wrote it all on this napkin and showed it to the guy, and the guy took the napkin over, and he wrote down there and gave it back, and it simply said, I will never believe. Here, I mean, great seasoned pastor, man of God had a one-on-one conversation. And the guy said, I'm, I'll never believe. And so we have this idea that, that, that one response to truth is just open defection. There will be some people who will never, ever believe, no matter how hard you push, no matter how often you talk to them, they just will never believe. That's one response to truth. Uh, no, uh, second response is uh, firm determination. We see that in John 6, 67 through 69. That's illustrated through Peter. 
Peter, he did not pretend to understand what Jesus was saying. He did not pretend to understand what Jesus was teaching. But his response illustrates genuine belief when he said, where am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life. So the second response is firm determination. And then the third response is uh, subtle deception. See it in John 6, 70 through 71. And that's illustrated through, through Judas. Think about this. When we think about Judas, Judas was numbered amongst the 12, right? Judas was one of the disciples. He was in the inner circle. Judas traveled all along with Jesus. For three and a half years, he was part of that group. Judas risked his life like the other disciples did. Judas was in that last supper when when Jesus would stand there, break the bread, share the wine, and he would predict that one of those people in the group would, would betray him. And listen, there's not recorded anywhere in Scripture where any one of those 12 even thought Judas was one of the guys. Nobody even looked Judas's way when, when Jesus said that one of you is going to betray me. In fact, when we read Matthew, the response of the disciples was they all were worried it was them. It was one of them. No one ever thought it was Judas. The reality is Judas was able to fool others and perhaps even fooled himself. But the result of this subtle deception would be tragedy for Judas. Have you ever wondered why Jesus even picked Judas in the first place? I mean, the Bible is very clear. In this passage that we just read alone this morning, even when Jesus picked his disciples, he knew who was and wasn't going to truly follow him. He knew as he was picking Judas that Judas would betray him. Why? Listen, we understand that Jesus' plan was he had to die on the cross for the sin of humanity. That was part of the plan. It had to occur. But it could have been someone else, right? It could have been somebody, it could have been a Roman general, it could have been a Roman soldier, it could have been some other high priest somewhere, but why one of his own? Why somebody in his inner circle? Let me offer a few ideas, and then we'll, we'll end. First, one, first reason why I believe that Jesus chose Judas was this. Jesus chose Judas in order to fulfill biblical prophecy. If you were to look up Psalm 41.9, it says, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. There are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament in reference to Jesus and the coming Messiah. And one of those prophecies is that he'd be betrayed by one of his close friends. Second reason I think Jesus chose Judas is um, in order to relate to us personally today. Most of us, there have been a time in our life where we've been betrayed, our trust has been broken. 
we can think back to middle school, we can think back to high school, and we can count probably on more than, we don't probably have enough fingers in our hands to think of those things that happened back in those days, right? It doesn't just happen in middle school and high school, right? It happens more, it probably happens more in our adult lives than it does as kids. We have those people that we think we can trust only to have that trust broken somehow. We put our hopes and dreams and, and, and plans, we lay it out there, we get vulnerable for somebody, only for somebody to, to break that trust, and it hurts. Same thing happened to Jesus. It allows us, as we read and think about Jesus and this relationship that he had with Judas, that he was hurt personally, just like we are hurt personally by people. I think it's also interesting that we see um, Judas as an impartial witness to his moral excellence. I don't know the last time you um, filled out an application for a job, but most of the time when you fill out an application for a job, you have to give a few references, don't you? How many of us have ever listed one of our enemies as a reference? Probably none of us, right? We don't want that because if you call them, they're going to say all the bad things about whatever else, right? Now, Jesus, on his quote-unquote resume, puts his enemy, Judas. He writes them down. What's interesting, when we look in and we read in Matthew, um, after, after Judas betrays Jesus, he collects his money. Upon pondering what had just happened, he throws the money away. Ultimately, he hangs himself. But the reality is, as he thinks about this, Judas, after spending this time with Jesus, knew that Jesus never did a single thing wrong. So Judas acts as an impartial witness to Jesus' excellence. Jesus chose Judas in order to enlighten us about hypocrisy. Sometimes when I have conversations with people who don't go to church, um, aren't really involved or, or care much about religion or faith or whatever, uh, when I bring up church, one of the responses is, well, church is filled with nothing but hypocrites. There's a lot of truth to that. If there was a hypocrite among the twelve, who traveled for three and a half years with Jesus, there'll be a hypocrite in a church, and there'll be more than one. I think it allows us to see that the reality that there are hypocr- that there is hypocrisy within the church, within Christians, within people. I think the fifth reason that Jesus chose Judas is uh, to warn us powerfully. As I said earlier, no one even suspected Judas No one even suggested him. But yet there's a darkness within him. And then I think the final reason Jesus chose Judas is to show his beauty, Jesus' beauty. Matthew 26, verse 50, um, in the the King James Version, I I like how it's written. As Judas is walking up, 
the Roman guards behind them. Jesus had just spent the night in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. Intense prayers. Jesus knew it was coming. Jesus knew what was about to happen. These prayers were so intense, the Bible tells us that his sweat had turned to blood. As Judas is walking forward, Matthew 26, verse 50, says, Jesus' response to Judas' friend, Wherefore art thou come? Why, why are you coming? Friend, why are you coming? Even at that moment of betrayal, Jesus referred to Judas as friend. Why? I believe it was this. Jesus was giving Judas one last chance, one last opportunity to rethink what he was about to do, to turn, to repent, to do what was right. The thing is, this morning, the Lord might be saying the same thing to us. Same thing to you, same thing to me. Wherefore, art thou come? Why are you here? Why are you coming? I'm giving you one more opportunity to come to me. As I said at the beginning of the message, um, as Courtney came in and, 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 and told me about her uncle, and Lord willing, everything will be fine, and he'll continue on, but it's a great reminder to us. We never know when that last breath will take place. It doesn't matter how young or how old we are. We never know. We never know when our one last opportunity will be. One of the things that I am greatly burdened by are lost souls. If I, typically, if I ever cry in the service, it's because of lost souls. It's one of those things that haunts me sometimes at night where I'll wake up almost in cold sweats thinking about people who, who will reject Christ here and spend eternity in hell. One of those passages that haunts me is when we read about when those stand before Jesus and, and, and Jesus tells them, depart from me, I never knew you. Those were people that thought, were acting as if they knew. Those were probably church people who just never came to a point where they truly believed. We talk about Peter, or when we talk about Judas, Judas traveled around with Jesus. He was there with them. He knew them. One of the things that burdens my heart are people who have been in church, have grown up in church, but have never come to that point where they've truly, truly accepted Christ. They've heard it. They've seen it. They know the talk. They say the talk. It's that idea of subtle deception to the point where sometimes they even fool themselves. This morning, I don't know where you're at. But I, don't, I do know we have a Savior who loves us no matter what we've done. No matter how good we've been, or how bad we've been. 
We have a Savior who is the bread of life, who will give us something that will fill that void in our lives. We don't have to turn to things. We don't have to turn to drugs, alcohol. We don't have to turn to other relationships. We don't have to turn to to money. We don't have to turn to jobs. We don't have to turn to anything. We can just turn to Him. We have a Savior who loves us and wants to be there for us and wants to be everything for us to the point where He died on a cross for us. And my hope and my prayer is that we respond like Peter responded with a tenacious passion to follow Jesus wherever he went. Even though he did not understand what Jesus was talking about, I'm quite sure Peter, as he's sitting down listening to Jesus talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, probably thought, this is crazy. I don't know what he's talking about, but I'm going to follow him and I'm going to do whatever he says because he's king of kings, lord of lords. He's my savior. I walked on the water with him. He dragged me through the storm. He calmed the waters. And I will follow him to the grave. I hope and pray that we do the same thing. I hope and pray that we individually and corporately are not people who need signs like the crowds did. That we don't need a miracle to decide whether we're going to believe in Jesus or not. That we don't need Jesus to keep giving us things in order for us to follow him. That we're not going to rely on entertainment or hype or hoopla. One of the things Pastor Ryan and I talk about all the time is we often use this uh, term of organic worship, organic church here. There's nothing, if you notice here, there's nothing fancy to us, right? There's no fog machines and strobe lights. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with fog machines or strobe lights, except I'd probably be choking up here if we are having fog. What I'm saying is, it's not Ryan's job to entertain you. It's not my job to come here and show a few stories to entertain people. I hope corporately and individually we don't build a faith around entertainment, hype, and hoopla. We build a faith around the Word of God. We allow that to be enough. We allow that. We allow the Word of God to be our substance that we need every single day of our lives. That's my hope and prayer for us as a church and us as individuals. Let's pray.